Let me say a word of prayer and then we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you so much for the brilliance of what you have done and that you have recorded this so that we can see your faithfulness in the past and it would encourage our faith today to go live out the lives that you send us into this world to live. I pray that, Father, you would give us courage and faith to do so. I do pray for the needs for everyone in this room and in the sound of my voice. Father, I pray that you would be near, that you would be present, and that we would feel your presence and your care. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I put this up last week. We're going to do the four major, I just want to remind you of this, we're doing the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. It's interesting, each one of the prophets is sort of foreshadowing the gospel while they're talking about what's happening at the time. And all four of them together are foreshadowing the whole picture of the gospel. If you remember, we defined a prophet, that word prophet, navi, means spokesman. And so prophets sometimes foretold the future, but not because they could foretell the future. They just were spokesmen for God. God can foretell the future. But, so they did a little of that, but most of what they did was just proclaiming God's word. Minor prophets did the same thing. We won't be covering them in this, but I want to make sure if you'd like, you can get to those lessons. Well, let me start with a map because I want to just place this historically. I started with this last time. So we can, we're going to take perspective and bring it down into a specific time period of history and see how God was working. This is what is called the divided kingdom. This is the modern nation of Israel, basically, in that footprint on the left side. And as, when Solomon died, 930 BC, there was a, a civil war, not much of a war, but basically there was a split and 10 tribes formed their own nation called Israel, I realize that's a little confusing, in the north. That's what will later in Jesus' time be Samaria, by the way. The capital of that later becomes the town of Samaria and that region, now I'm talking 900 years later when Jesus comes, that's gonna be the Samaritans. But for this time period, those are the 10 northern tribes. And then in Judah in the south, that included Jerusalem, there are two tribes there. And so they split and they became kind of hostile to one another. And we talked about that a little bit. So that's kind of the setting in about 900. Let's fast forward almost a couple of hundred years, and we're now in uh, the eighth century. So I wanna take you to about 722. So from 930 BC to 722. Remember, it goes backwards on that side of the, of the timeline. And so 200 years later, the Assyrians are the ascendant power in the north. The Assyrians have begun to expand south. You can see these arrows. They, they basically have conquered the Babylonians, circled that. They are moving down into this little buffer zone of Syria, Israel, and Judah. They're bounded by a desert on this side. Nobody's taking an army through the desert. So you're gonna come through Syria and then the modern state of Israel, which at that time was Israel and Judah, to get to Egypt, which is the southern power. So Israel, Judah, Syria have always been little buffer states, if you will, a little buffer zone militarily. So they begin to come through here. In our last lesson, we talked about the prophet Isaiah. This is when the prophet Isaiah lived. 
The Assyrians conquered Israel in 722 BC. That northern kingdom conquered by the Assyrians in 722. Then the Assyrian kings, several years later, invaded Judah in 701 BC. This is what we talked about in our last lesson. In 701, they came and they besieged Jerusalem. And you remember King Hezekiah went to Isaiah and said, oh no, we've got this huge army. Isaiah said, the Lord says they won't set foot in this city. And remember, they woke up and the army is dead and uh, Sennacherib happened to be the king of the Assyrians at that time, takes his army and leaves and they didn't conquer Judah. They didn't take Jerusalem, but they attempted it in 701 BC. And that was our story of Isaiah. He was giving God's message to say, return to God and be faithful and God will preserve you. So in today's story, we're going to move forward a little more in time and we're gonna follow for just a moment the Assyrian empire. So what happens after 701 BC? Well, they don't take Jerusalem but they're very successful in expanding their kingdom. You notice in this green is you have, they've taken control of Egypt, still have Babylonia. Notice here that Judah is not green on this map and that's because Judah was a client state. I mean, Judah had to pay taxes, but they were not conquered. And so God kept his word and he preserved them. Well, as time goes on and we get into the 600s, this is a great map from the ESV uh, Atlas, which has got some awesome maps. This one's very useful. What they're showing you is in the 600s though, because of all their wars, the economy, and again, you know I'm really big on, I want you to see that what's happening in the Bible and biblical history is happening in the real world. The Assyrian government begins to have economic problems from all the wars that they're having. And so they're having a harder time. Their army gets depleted from all of these campaigns. And so what happens is they get weaker and weaker as you go through the 600s. And you get weaker and weaker Assyrian kings. In those days, when you got weak kings, guess what happened? Everybody starts rebelling. Everybody starts to try to knock you off. So as Assyria became weaker through the 600s, the Babylonians begin to rebel. Egypt wants to recapture this area of Syria and Judah because they want a buffer, a like a demilitarized zone, if you will, a DMZ, but like between North and South Korea. They want Israel basically to be an area that they control it so that they've got warning if the Assyrians come. Well, they begin to attack the Assyrians. The Assyrians are having trouble holding everybody off. The Medes, who will show up in the prophet Daniel in a big way, but that is a nation of basically Persians. Think uh, Iran, think modern day Iran. And so they're also trying to attack and throw off Assyria. So Assyria is trying to combat its foes and what really seals their fate is in 615, and the reason I'm telling you all this, I know it sounds like a history lesson, this is the setting for what is happening in the Bible. A lot of what I'm telling you here is in the Bible, not all of these dates in the history, but these you know, geopolitical forces are happening in the context of what we're gonna talk about with the prophet 
Jeremiah. But in 615, the Babylonians and the Medes make a treaty. And that's the death blow to Assyria. They could hold off each one of their enemies one at a time, but they're not successful in holding off the Babylonians and the Medes at the same time. And so in 612, just a few years later, they conquer the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh. It's near Mosul, Iraq. And so they conquer that city. Well, that's a problem. So the Assyrian army and the king, they go back here to Carchemish, and their territory kind of gets carved in half a little bit. And so 612, the Assyrian Empire starts to crumble. This is about the time that Jeremiah comes onto the scene. So let me take you to the scriptures, and we're going to go into the book of Jeremiah, and I want to tell you what's happening now in Judah at this time. So here's the opening, basically most of the first chapter. I've just excerpted a little bit of it. But most of the first chapter of Jeremiah, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. In other words, he says, I was a priest in Judah, in that area of Judah. And so you know a little bit about him, who he is. He was a priest. He came from that town, that little town called Anathoth. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. Josiah was a king who reigned from about 640 B.C. until his death in 609. So the date that Jeremiah began his uh, career, if you will, as a prophet, is dated to about 625 B.C. So you can tell with pretty certainty when he began to preach. That's right at the time when the Babylonians and the Medes are pushing the Assyrians and the Egyptians are thinking they might come up and conquer Judah. And so he comes into this really turbulent geopolitical world. It says, so the word of the Lord came to me, and he prophesied through several kings, and actually to the end of Judah. The word of the Lord came to me, and here's what it said. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. You see a little foreshadowing of election here? I don't want to get off on this because it's not the main lesson. But I know when we read this, we tend to think of, wow, God has a plan. That's true. He said, Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew who you were. I knew who you were going to be, and I had a plan set for you. In the New Testament, that language sounds a little bit different. Think about, for example, Ephesians chapter 1. There are a lot of places but it says this to Christians. This is being written to Christ followers. It says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's the same idea. It said he knew us before we were born and he laid out a plan for our life. So it's a powerful statement about God's sovereignty and God's plan for us. He said, I appointed you. And Jeremiah says, ah, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. He doesn't literally mean I'm a child. He just means, oh my goodness, I'm hearing the Lord Almighty. It's like, I'm not smart enough, good enough, anything. That's what he means when he says, I'm only a child. But the Lord said to me, don't say that. You must go to everyone I send you to and say what I command you. What are prophets? Spokesperson. And you go tell them what I command you. Don't be afraid of them. 
which he, sh- he, he would be because he's going to say some really unpopular things. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. Today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Meaning you are going to utter messages from me that will reshape the world. It's going to topple nations. Cataclysmic time. And then at the end of that chapter, get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them what I command you. Do not be terrified or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city and iron pillar. Then in verse 19, they will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you, and I will rescue you. And that's a powerful thing to say, because you're going to get this one guy who's going to go tell the most powerful people in the world things they don't want to hear. And they're going to try to kill him. And so God says, by the way, let me just tell you, don't be afraid, even though you're going to be tempted to be afraid. So that's Jeremiah's calling. Well, what is some of his message? Chapter 2, the word of the Lord came to me and says, I want you to go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. In other words, I want you to go preach in Jerusalem. And say this, I remember the devotion of your youth and how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the fruits of his harvest. What God is saying is you were faithful to me. I chose you like a bride. uses the marriage analogy Uh, for the intimacy and the chosenness, you'll see that same analogy as the church in the New Testament is the bride of Christ. Again, trying to talk about that intimate relationship. He said, remember when you came out of Egypt? Egypt and the Exodus now is 700 years before this. But he said, when you came out of that, I was faithful to you, wasn't I? I took you and loved you like a bride and said, but hear the word of the Lord. O house of Jacob, Israel, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They didn't ask, where's the Lord who brought us out of Egypt? The priests, down in verse 8, didn't say, where is the Lord? He says, therefore, verse 9, I'm bringing charges against you. And I will bring charges against your children's children's. He said, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet what you worship aren't gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. He said, be appalled at this, O heaven, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. What's he basically saying? Jeremiah is going to take a message and say to the people, you have not been faithful to God. You have wandered after idols. A hundred years ago, Isaiah warned you, you saw what happened to the northern kingdom. The Assyrians came and destroyed it. God himself saved you miraculously. And now here we are about a hundred years later and you've turned to idols again. And so God is pronouncing his judgment on them. Next, then the Lord said to me, there is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They have returned to the sins of their forefathers who refused to listen to me. They have followed other gods to serve them. The house of Israel, house of Judah, have broken the covenant I made with their forefathers. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster that they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. 
The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they burn incense, but those gods won't help them at all. You have as many gods as you have towns, Judah, and the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shameful god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. Now, this is kind of interesting. I'm going to take a brief detour. The book of Jeremiah is famous for probably the verse that has sold more coffee cups than anything else. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I mean, it's, it's sold millions of coffee cups. You don't see that verse on the coffee cups, do you? And so my point is, we wanna be a little careful about snatching things out of context because he's talking to the same people there, right? Just at a little different time. But you see the judgment of God, the wrath of God and the judgment of God falls on Judah for being unfaithful. This is a bit of a foreshadowing of the gospel. I've said this before, and as you read the New Testament, you realize the gospel begins with a recognition. Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is being poured out on all ungodliness. And so what it's saying is, is the good news of Jesus Christ begins with the bad news that we have a big problem. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. These are the way the Bible characterizes it. So you're going to see the gospel of Jesus in miniature in this book and in what's happening in this time period. The other thing I want you to watch as we go through this is I'm showing you this history of geopolitically what is happening at this time. And it's happening right at the time of these verses. And so you have Assyria being encroached upon. The Babylonians are going to conquer them in the end. And then the Babylonians are going to want to come to Judah. We're going to see this. In other words, you have geopolitical empire building. It's like you have, uh, even today, we have empire builders in the world today who are taking over countries one at a time and trying to build an empire. That's what's happening. So what are these empire builders thinking? Do they think, hey, I'm playing a starring role in the Bible. People will read about me 2,000 years from now. No. You know what they're thinking? I'm going to conquer the world. I'm awesome. I'm going to be the guy. I'm going to make a huge empire. At the same time, what's God saying? He's talking to his people, and he says, all this stuff going on in the world, you think it's about geopolitics. You think it's about armies and other armies and kings and great men and great women. He says, actually, let me tell you what this is about. You have broken faith with me. This is about us. Powerful idea that God entwines his faith relationship with his people and what is happening in the world. I want you to watch as we go through this that God is architecting history. All these kings think they're, they're running the show. They're just doing what they're going to do. They're going to shape history. God's talking to his people, and he's using the geopolitics, and he's putting them together. In other words, in the book of Jeremiah, you look at current events of his time. You look at those events and you say, those things are part of our covenant with God. All those kings standing out here go, God, I don't know, I worship 20 different gods. I'm all about my own business. But one of the messages from all of the prophets is what's going on in the world is really comes down to God dealing with his people. And that's a powerful idea. God's not a God just of religion. He's only here on Sundays, and then he checks out for the rest of the world. What you see in the prophets is he's actually architecting history, and everything moves to his relationship with us. 
that's got really powerful modern-day implications. Okay, back to our story. So God's talking to Judah, and at the same time, this is happening in the world. So, remember we left the uh, Babylonians and the Medes, and they're attacking the Assyrians. Meanwhile, down in Egypt, a pharaoh, a guy named Necho, N-E-C-O, he says, you know, he's making his political calculations. And he says, I'm going to go help the Assyrians. And so he starts to march an army north through Judah and Israel and all that, and he's going to go help the Assyrians so they don't get conquered by the Babylonians. Why? He's done a political power calculation, and he says the Babylonians will be very bad people to have up there in the north. They're very expansionist. They're brutal. They're good warriors. If I help Assyria, then I can keep a weak Assyrian government in the north, and they're not going to threaten me. In other words, if Assyria and Babylon just fight each other for the next 50 years, Egypt is gold. This is great. So he's made a power uh, calculation. So he begins to march his army north. This is a neat little map because Josiah, one of the really good kings, in 609, he decides that he needs to try to stop. He goes to this town of Megiddo. You know the town of Megiddo because it's where Armageddon comes from. And this is kind of a foreshadowing of Armageddon, if you will. So the Egyptian army comes up there and Josiah gets all of his uh, army together and he says, hey, we're going to stop you. Well, Unfortunately, he does not. And so Josiah is killed, and their army is defeated, and the Egyptians go on north. And so in uh, 609, they have this big old battle up here. Actually, it's 605, but close enough. Anyway, so you have this big battle in Carchemish. And so you've got the Assyrians and the Egyptians fighting against the Babylonians, and the Babylonians win. And the Egyptians hightail at home and go, ooh, uh, it's not a good outcome. Assyrians go off into the pages of history to be nothing more than a dusty footnote, and the Babylonians take control of what's going on. So the Babylonian Empire establishes itself. Now, back to the scripture. Here's what God says to Jeremiah. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Talking about the Jews who are unfaithful. They've become rich and powerful. They've grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not, and listen to what he's upset with them about. They do not plead the case of the fatherless, the orphans. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on a nation? In other words, he says, you have been unfaithful to me, and how have you been unfaithful? Well, you worshiped idols, but you know, he says, what I'm really angry about is how you're mistreating people and oppressing them. That's not what I told you to do. He said, should I not judge that? It's a rhetorical question. He says, I most certainly will judge that. Next passage. To whom can I speak and give warning, Jeremiah says. Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed. They won't hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord, and I cannot hold it in. You see, what happened to Jeremiah right now is he's out there telling people this. And they're like, we don't want to hear this. Prophets speak truth that the culture doesn't want to hear. Remember I said the prophets are a model for us as Christians. We also are spokespeople of God. And so Jeremiah, I want you to imagine in this time that he's getting more and more pressure from the people he's talking to because they don't want to hear this message. 
Let me pause, take a question, and I'll tell you what they're trying to do to Jeremiah. So are you saying, or is the Bible saying, that if a nation loses faith in God and becomes deceitful, that he will kill them? Is that what it means to be God-fearing? Good question, uh, which I'm probably going to write a blog post about this, so I'll try to make this really short, because I think it's a really interesting question. What is the modern-day role of geopolitics and the covenant of faith that God has with Christians. Because what Jeremiah is talking about and what I'm trying to say to you is, is that the main thing going on here is Judah and God, but it's not going on in a vacuum. All these things that all these rulers are doing, God is orchestrating it into his plan for his people. Interesting question is, is that still true today? So. Stay tuned, I'll write a blog post about that. But this question, it takes a little bit of time to answer that. This question's interesting, is that a general rule? If any nation uh, turns away from God, does God then destroy them? And that's what the fear of the Lord means. Well, fear of the Lord means that God is indeed all powerful, but that doesn't appear scripturally. I'm just gonna go back to the scripture and say, what do you see happening? That's not the way God deals with all nations. It's not a simple transaction. He has, for example, uh, the Assyrians were faithless. They ended up getting destroyed, but not necessarily because they were faithless. You've got all kinds of other nations, but God has a chosen people he's dealing with. And for the nation of Israel, he is using geopolitical events to move his uh, story of redemption along. So the answer to that question technically is no. It's not just a thing. It says, okay, you be good and you believe in me and I'll make sure nobody ever conquers you. That's not the record of the scripture. But with Israel, I'm gonna turn it around and say, he does, at least sometimes, in this case, he is using the geopolitics to affect his judgment on Israel. But that's not a general rule in the scripture that you see happening to every nation. So good question. Why do the names of the cities change? Like Nineveh's name is not Nineveh anymore. Why did the names of the cities change? For example, uh, Babylon was, is going to be the capital of the Babylonian Empire, and it's really close to modern-day Baghdad. And then you have Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrians. When they get destroyed like that, they're not always rebuilt, but you do have the remains of that city there. So the names get changed because they don't always rebuild on that site. Babylon and Nineveh, aren't, they didn't rebuild on top of it. They rebuilt later nearby, and those remains stayed those remains. So, new town, new name. Sorry, probably somebody bought the naming rights. I'm not sure. but Well, listen to Jeremiah then. In the midst of what's going on here, the Babylonians have now taken control. But in the midst of that, he's starting to tell them, listen, you guys need to turn back to God. You have been faithless. And so a guy named Zedekiah becomes king. After Josiah, there's two other kings, and time doesn't permit me to just tell you the whole history. But Zedekiah is going to be the last king of Judah. So he's 21 years old when he go, comes into power. And so Zedekiah becomes the king, and Jeremiah gives him this message. He says, bow your neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon. In other words, don't fight the king of Babylon. Serve him and his people, and you will live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, famine, and plague, which the Lord has threatened any nation? that will not serve the king of Babylon. Do not listen to the words of these other prophets. See, there are other people telling the king, 
God says, fight them. It's going to be just like Hezekiah. You're going to defeat the Babylonians. Jeremiah is the lone voice, the only one really speaking for God who says, the Babylonians, they don't know this, but they're going to affect judgment on Judah. I will discipline Judah for this unrighteousness that's gone on. And so what you need to do is you need to surrender to them and accept God's judgment and move on. If you do not, they're going to destroy you, and they're going to kill a lot of people. So what some of the prophets were saying, you will not serve the king of Babylon. Jeremiah says, they're prophesying lies to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. They're prophesying lies in my name. Therefore, I will banish you, and you will perish, both you and the prophets who prophesy to you. So Jeremiah is saying, you need to surrender. Well, you can imagine how unpopular that is. They, make, they begin to say Jeremiah is undermining the will of the people to fight. He's being unpatriotic. He's being treasonous. And so they begin, and Jeremiah's like, Lord, do you not have another message here? This is not going well. And God says, you just keep telling them what I tell you that they need to do. Next passage. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me. So they decide they're going to kill him. But the Lord tells Jeremiah, by the way, the people that you thought were your friends, they're going to kill you. He said, I knew it, for at that time he showed me what they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, let us destroy the fruit and its tree. He says, they were decided to kill me. He said, but O Lord Almighty, you who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. In other words, I'm going to be faithful, even if they say they're going to kill me, even if they do kill me, I'm, I'm your guy. I'm going to say what you told me to say. Then one more. Lord, and this is the, I want you to feel the pathos of this. This is Jeremiah, year after year. I mean, what we're talking about is really short time period here, but this is year after year. He's saying these things. They throw him into a cistern and leave him for dead. They plot to try to kill him. And every day he's supposed to go show up in Jerusalem and keep preaching this message. And so he becomes very discouraged. And this is one of the really pretty passages. The New English translation really captures the, the Hebrew here. Lord, you coerced me into being a prophet, and I allowed you to do it. You overcame my resistance and prevailed over me. He's, he's uh, whining. And uh, now I've become a constant laughingstock. Everyone ridicules me. For whenever I prophesy, I must cry out, violence and destruction are coming. This message from the Lord has made me an object of continual insults and derision. I want to stop there for a second. Do you ever feel that way as a Christian in our culture? By speaking what God told you to speak, do you not sometimes feel like, Lord, why do we need to say this? Because now we're a laughingstock, we're derision, insults. The message of the Lord will always offend the prevailing culture of this world. That was true in Jeremiah's time. It was most certainly true in Jesus' time. Like I like to say, they didn't elect him mayor of Jerusalem. They nailed him to a cross for telling the truth. And it's true still today. Do not expect anything different. Trying to design, John in the New Testament says, do you not realize that friendship with the world is hatred of God? In other words, don't pretend that you will be friends with the world. I'm not talking about not being hospitable, not loving people. I'm talking about don't think that we're going to go give the message of God's truth to the world and everybody's going to say, wow, I am so glad you told me that. Thank you very much. You know, I just want you to see there's a constancy that runs through Scripture in this. 
So then he says, sometimes I think I will make no mention of this message. I will not speak as his messenger anymore, but then his message becomes like a fire locked up inside of me, burning in my heart and my soul. I grow tired of trying to hold it in. I cannot contain it. This is what it is like for you and me. We should feel a fire that the word of the Lord, the good news of the gospel, that because of Jesus' great love for us, he has borne our sins, and if you will trust in him, you can be saved. This is gospel. That should burn like a fire and say, you know what? Sometimes I try not to say that, but when I do, it just burns me up. In other words, I'm compelled to speak God's word. That's what we strive for, is to so ingest God's word that it becomes a fire inside of us. And we, like Jeremiah, must speak the truth. So they're trying to kill Jeremiah. He's being faithful to send to speak the message to them. Meanwhile, back on the geopolitical scene, Nebuchadnezzar becomes the king of the Babylonians. After uh, they conquer, he is the king at that time. And Nebuchadnezzar, brilliant, we'll talk more about him in Daniel when we get to the fourth prophet. He's a big player in that story. But right now, he comes into power and he says, I'm going to make an empire that like no one's ever seen before. Let's just say Nebuchadnezzar had a really strong self-image, you know, master egotist. By the way, if you remember Saddam Hussein, because Babylon is modern-day Iraq. I mean, Babylon is near Baghdad. I mean, the Babylonian Empire was centered where modern-day Iraq is. Saddam Hussein saw himself as a new Nebuchadnezzar, and he envisioned you know, that that nation was going to take over the whole Middle East. In other words, he had imperial designs, and he looked back in their glorious history and said, I'm going to be like Nebuchadnezzar and expand. But Nebuchadnezzar was very, very good. And so he finally, uh, Judah stops paying tribute. And so he comes down once in 597. And remember, we just... They just conquered Assyria in 605. By 597, he shows up down there and he says, you guys aren't paying the tax. And Zedekiah says, oh, did we forget late payment fee? No problem. Let me write you a check. You know, he's like, okay, I don't want any trouble with you. But just to make sure we don't have any more slow payment, Nebuchadnezzar takes a bunch of the leading citizens out of Jerusalem. I mean, he takes a lot of the aristocrats. He takes some priests and he takes a young man named Daniel and takes him back to Babylon and says, all right, you keep paying. This is 597. He says, you keep paying, and these guys will be fine. So he takes them back to Babylon. Well, a little bit of time passes, and so Zedekiah gets talked into rebelling. And so 597, he takes people away. 589, he's had enough of this. And so he shows up, and he, this is a map of the Babylonian army conquering its way all through this area. Conquers Megiddo, he conquers the Philistines, and he shows up at Jerusalem. And so he conquers city after city after city. And in 589, he shows up, Zedekiah is the king, camps around Jerusalem, and says, you are doomed. In other words, I'm here, I won't tolerate this kind of thing anymore. So what's Jeremiah saying? 
Jeremiah's saying is, you better surrender or you've had it. But that's not what the people are thinking. So Jeremiah says this. He said the, the siege lasts two years. Well, just a little over two years. So from 589 until 586, basically. And now we're going to go back to the scripture, and I'm going to tell you what happens. Jeremiah says, you need to surrender. They throw him in a cistern and say, shut up. We're going to wait this guy out, right? Here's how the scripture says uh, this ends. This is one of the most poignant passages of scripture. Very sad. Now, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the 10th day of the 10th month, Nebuchadnezzar marched against Jerusalem with his whole army, 589 basically. They camped outside the city and they built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Think 586 by our standards. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled anyway. They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon, where he pronounced sentence on him. And there the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon, where he put him in prison until the day he died. He kills all of his family in front of him and puts out his eyes, so that's the last thing he will see. And then he puts it on the internet and says, don't anybody mess with the Babylonians. This is the brutality and the intimidation of the time. But Jeremiah, who said, surrender. And during this time, unbelievable amount of Jewish people are killed in this siege from, from starvation and from disease, but then also by the army as they came in and they sacked and they pillaged. In fact, it goes on, I'm gonna pull this one out of 2 Kings, but it's also in Jeremiah. On the seventh day of the fifth month, Nebuchadnezzar uh, sent Nebuzaradan, a commander and an official, to Jerusalem. And he set fire to the temple, the beautiful temple that Solomon had built of the Lord, the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned. The whole Babylonian army, under the command of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. They literally pulled the stones down so there was no wall. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. The commander left some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and to work the fields. This should be the end of the Jewish people in history because this had happened to all kinds of other people that you no longer read about. So what happened is God prophesied. Had he surrendered, these people would at least be alive and they'd be paying taxes, but instead they're destroyed. He deports the rest of the people and leaves only poor people to farm so they can send some produce back to Babylon. He made an example of Jerusalem for the whole world to see. And so the Jews at this time should have disappeared from the pages of history. 
They're dispersed, they're deported, they're taken back to Babylon. In fact, I'll show you, this is the map and the picture of he's taking them back from Judah, takes them all the way down near Babylon and resettles them. In our next lesson, we're going to talk about the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel is with these exiles right there. And so Ezekiel is going to speak to these exiles from God to tell them what happens next. Are we done? Is God done with us? But this story continues from Jeremiah, and he's speaking now of this event uh, when they're taken and the exiles. And so theoretically, and this is just one of those miraculous events in history, the Jews should just be gone and they should never appear again. So let me pause for questions and I'll tell you the rest of the story of Jeremiah. What do you say after that? I mean, think about it. Well, okay, that didn't go so well. I told them what God told me. They didn't listen to me. Sure enough, King of Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem, torches the temple. Everybody's gone. So, hey, where's your cheerful message now, right? So I want to tell you what Jeremiah does after this. First question. Yes. Does God call prophets today? And if he does, how do we know which ones are the real ones? Does God call prophets today? And if so, how do we know which ones are the real ones? I think what that question is presupposing is does does God give a message to people today that might predict the future? Because my answer to that question is, you are prophets. Christians are God's prophets. Remember my thesis. The Old Testament prophets are a model of what Christians are. What did Old Testament prophets do? They were called to a purpose of God. They were given a message and they were told, go proclaim the message of God. What are Christians told to do? You were chosen before the foundation of the world. You were called out. In other words, when you believe, God sealed you with the Holy Spirit. You were given a great commission. Take this good news to the ends of the earth. Matthew chapter 28. Go speak the words of God to the world. You are prophets. I want you to see that is the model for what we are. We could have all been Jedi. I mean, think about it. What if the New Testament, Jesus came and said, okay, forget the Old Testament. That doesn't have anything to do with what I'm doing here. Anybody who believes in me, you will be able to use a lightsaber and tap into the force, right? He could. I know it's, I'm being facetious, but my point is God could do this any way he wants. But what is he doing? He said, hey, you know those prophets? Remember those guys? Yeah, they're the ones that spoke truth to the surrounding culture. They had the message of hope, like turn to God. They had the message of judgment, that unfaithfulness, God is going to judge. I mean, that's what they did. He go, yeah, we know that. You told us all about them. He goes, that's who you are. You trust, you follow Jesus Christ. Here's his message. Go take it to the world. You are prophets. Now, that question is probably a little more narrow, and I appreciate that, is does God give some of you, and trust me, he does because some of you email me, all right? Does he give some of you a message about what's going to happen in the future, right? All joking aside, I, I think that that is certainly possible, but I want you to, I mean, because who can put a limit on what God might do? But I want to give you this caveat, because the model of the Old Testament prophets are Christians. If it served God's purpose to bring a person, 
that spoke something about the future. I don't want to use the word prophet because we are prophets. That spoke something about the future, he would do so. And it would be for God's purposes, not that person. It wouldn't be anything special about that person. There's nothing special about Jeremiah. You know the only thing special about him? He's faithful. He did what God told him even when it was hard. Is he smarter than you? No, he's not. Is he more eloquent? No. Does he have some superpower to see the future? No. He's just repeating what God told him. God might do that, but I think it's very unlikely. I mean, I can't tell you what God will or won't do, but it seems very unlikely because God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. You and I don't really need to predict the future. We know everything we need to know. So I think it's very unlikely, but could God? He certainly could. And there are certainly people who think they are. Good question. Not you. I'm talking about in the world. There are people who think that they are prophets. Yes. Well, here's what God tells Jeremiah to say. So you have the wrath of God. You have the judgment of God. You have God using geopolitical events to affect his plan for his people. Listen to this. Jeremiah says this. Return faithless people, for I am your husband. Remember I talked about I was your husband and you left me? I mean, you went to with these other islands said, I am still your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and I will bring you back to Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. Jeremiah 31, this is what the Lord says. The people who survived the sword find favor in the desert. In other words, I know you just got carried away, but there I will bring you back. He says, I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. So you get this idea of God saying, I will bring you back. You have been judged and yet I love you. Think John 3.16. So the essence of the gospel is there's no one righteous, not even one. I mean, Romans begins by saying we all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can stand before God and say, hey, we're in good shape here because I'm perfect. You know, I haven't sinned against you. I haven't worshipped an idol. I haven't been oppressed the poor. I haven't been unfaithful to you. Not one of us can say that, right? No one can say that. So think what he's saying to them is that's you, and yet... I love you, and yet I will bring you back to me. John 3, 16. And even though there's not one righteous person in the world, God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that whoever trusts in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. And so here comes Jesus to take all of us who are living in exile, if you will, far away from God, and bring us home. That's the way Jesus shaped his ministry. I came to seek and save the lost. In other words, I am the good shepherd. I came, my sheep know me, and they follow me. You see all this metaphors? It's exactly the same as what's happening here. What's happening to, to Israel in this time is foreshadowing the gospel. And we are the modern-day prophets, if you will, spokespeople for God. And then he says this beautiful passage. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, the law of Moses, the 613 rules. He said, it won't be that kind of covenant with them because they broke my covenant. Even though I was faithful, I was a husband to them. 
This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And that is what Jesus Christ came to do, is he didn't give us 613 laws, did he? He said, I want your heart completely. Let the, quote, law of God be written on your heart. And what did he say? Think about the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you, forgive. You've heard that it was said, but I say this. He takes all of those laws and brings them into our heart and says, I want you to become the kind of people that I want you to be. And so everything that's happening here geopolitically is happening as part of God's redemptive plan, and that's still true today. So let me finish with uh, giving you the rest of the story, if you will. So we're going to leave the Israelites exiled in Babylon for a week, and then we're going to come back, and Ezekiel is going to give us God's message to them. And Ezekiel... That guy has the wildest visions you have ever seen. And so you're going to like Ezekiel a lot. He is one weird bird. Anyway, he's going to speak to the exiles. Jeremiah's last parting words to them were, the Lord will bring you back. He still has not forgotten you despite your faithlessness. And the time is coming, and he points towards hope in the future. What happened to Jeremiah? Well, he didn't go with the exiles, some of them, this is just really interesting, some of them got out of Jerusalem and they went to Egypt to escape the Babylonians and they forcibly took Jeremiah with them. He didn't want to go, but they took him and said, no, we're going to Egypt, we're going to be safe. Egypt is a sanctuary, right? So some of the well-born people who were left made it to Egypt, and that's where we're going to leave. Jeremiah is in Egypt. But here's the really interesting little mythological tidbit from history. Interesting question, which the great Indiana Jones posed. What happened to the ark? Remember the temple that the Babylonians burned? Well, in the Holy of Holies was this gold ark. Goes all the way back to Moses' time, right? This thing is where God himself came down upon there. They got the cherubim on top of it. I should have brought you a picture of it. But it's like, what happened to the ark? It was set in the Holy of Holies. So Indiana Jones has got his theory, right? It's still around. It's in a government warehouse somewhere. Some people say the Babylonians took it along with all the other valuables. They said, hey, what's this box? It's pretty cool. Let's take that. It's made of gold. Let's take it with us. Maybe we'll melt it down. I don't know, maybe we'll put it on exhibit or something in the museum in Babylon, but that they took it with them. But there is this recurring myth that when Jeremiah and those people left and went to Egypt, they took it with them. So when the Babylonians burned the temple and get to the Holy of Holies, nothing there but some dust and some marks where it used to be sitting. They took it with them and they took it to Egypt and it made its way to Ethiopia. Ethiopia, historically, has had a Jewish community for a long time, and there is a church in Ethiopia today that claims to have the ark. And this is where that idea comes from, is that Jeremiah, and it's true, Jeremiah went to Egypt. That part's true. The part we don't know is, was he carrying that big old ark with him when he went? But according to that myth, that's what happened to the ark, 
and it's in a little church in Ethiopia today. So just a little tidbit for you to let you know that myths are usually based on something like that. I call it a myth. I can't tell you that I haven't checked it out to go see it. They won't let anybody in to see it, but I'm just putting my money on the old Babylonians melted it down thing. That's just me, all right? <laughs> call me skeptical if you want to, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. Well, let me summarize this just a little bit. I want you to see a couple of things because I think it's really important to us. A couple of key ideas here, first are big ideas, and that is Jeremiah speaking and what God is doing with the Israelites is in a little piece forecasting what God's gonna do with Jesus. I know I keep hitting this theme, but I want you to see everywhere you go in the Bible, it all points to Jesus. Jesus is the center of history. The Old Testament's not some bunch of fairy tales that happened, oh, and then Jesus showed up, chapter two. No, same story, exactly the same story. And so the gospel is in Jeremiah. It's in what's happening. Second thing, God is not just the God of faith. Some people want to confine faith to church buildings. Our culture does. Our culture right now says, at least for the time being, it's okay if you want to be Christian and say those kinds of stuff that we don't like to hear as long as you just stay and do it in your little buildings. But once you come into the public square, oh, leave that faith over there. Jeremiah is pointing to us that Faith can't be contained. In other words, God uses everything that's going on. He is indeed the architect of history. So when you look, and the reason I tell you this, when you pick up the newspaper and you go, whoa, it's a big bad world out there. It's a dangerous place. I better scuttle back to my church where God can watch over me. God is architecting this history as well. He's the God of history, not just the God in Crossings Community Church. And then finally, I really want you to think about this idea that the Old Testament prophets did their job partly so that you and I would know what it's like to be a Christian. Jeremiah is a great model for what you and I are supposed to be like. God touched our lips and put his words in our mouth. He saved us. And he says, go speak what I tell you to speak. Go take my love, my compassion, my hope, my truth to this world. I want you to be like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a model for what we're like. He says, I hope my words, the word of God, that's why we need to pour into it. We need to pour it inside of us. It's gonna be like a burning fire that has to come out of you. That's the model for what we are as Christians. And I want you to think about, you've been picked. Remember back at the chapter one, he says, I knew you before you were formed in the womb, Jeremiah, and I had a plan for you. That's true for every one of us. He said, I knew you before you were in the womb. I chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And here, here are my words I put on your lips. Now go, be a faithful spokesman for me. And that's your assignment this week. Go be faithful spokesman. And then come back, buckle your seatbelts, because we're going to have some wild visions next week. See you guys.